As bad as a springtime wave of COVID-19 might seem I have worse news. A lot of people don't care. And to them, another wave is not a huge deal, despite doctors and medical professionals in the media increasingly sounding the alarm. Ontario is hoping to put the brakes on surging COVID case numbers. Starting tomorrow, a province-wide shutdown will take effect. Meanwhile, Quebec has shut down schools and non-essential businesses in three cities. And in British Columbia, there's what's being called a three-week circuit breaker. Indoor dining is on hold, as are indoor fitness classes. This is why, if you've been watching news or scrolling through social media, you've been seeing a Vancouver restaurant open up against restrictions. You're seeing packed malls and IKEA lineups in Ontario. And far beyond seeing some individuals making bad choices, you are seeing some governments treat this wave just like the last one. But it's not. This arena is even quieter these days because COVID-19 has sidelined the Vancouver Canucks. There's been a COVID-19 outbreak inside the team. As of yesterday, 16 players were in the league's COVID protocol. What makes it worse is that the Brazilian variant is in the dressing room. This thing is two and a half times more contagious than the original. The Vancouver Canucks, in case you don't care about hockey, have not been traveling to Brazil or to the United States. They've managed to have a COVID variant called P1 run wild through their locker room, canceling games and, according to reports, making some players seriously ill. And again, you don't have to care about hockey, but I will say this. Hockey players are fit. They have some of the world's best lung capacity. So if this P1 variant is knocking them down, maybe that should be the wake-up call. But let's recognize a few things here. Not everyone consumes every bit of news related to COVID and its variants. Not everyone, sadly, trusts the news they do here. And not everyone can stay home. Not everyone can stay out of the malls, even if they wanted to. And not everyone has had it explained to them, simply and properly, why this wave is different from everything else that we've muddled through so far. So what are COVID variants? How do they work? How do we stop them? What do we need to do differently? Can we do it? And how fast? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Another wave of COVID means another chance to talk to Dr. David Fisman. It's always a pleasure, even though I wish we didn't hear from you every couple months. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing uh, about as well as I was doing this time last year. But uh, we wanted to have you on to get some sort of explain some things to me like I'm five uh, done here. And maybe... You can just start um, because most people, I think, aren't on uh, COVID-19 Twitter all day. Can you explain variants to me like I'm five? Like, what are they? What's happening here? Sure. Well, I mean, you can go to the dog park and you can uh, see beagles and you can see schnauzers and you can see, uh, you know, German shepherds. They're all dogs, right? They're all the same species, they can have babies. I mean, they, you know, you can have a schnauzer, or a German shepherd cross, but their genes are different. So they look different and they have certain characteristics that sort of may, may predict them behaving in certain ways. You, you know, a German shepherd may have some attributes 
the Schnauzer may have others. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're living things. Viruses are sort of living things with an asterisk in that they need to appropriate uh, uh, the cellular machinery from a, you know, a, a bigger, more uh, uh, evolutionarily advanced creature in order to propagate themselves. But, you know, their, their basic building blocks are still nucleic acids, are still, are still genes um, that, that they use to make copies of themselves. And so this, you know, you can think of, of these different lineages, which becomes a bit of an alphabet soup with P1 and B1351 and B117. Right. You can think of them as almost like the different dogs in the dog park. You know, you probably uh, would be less stressed out to get a bite from a Yorkshire Terrier than to get a bite from a German Shepherd. Fair. Uh, a German Shepherd may run faster than a Yorkshire Terrier, for example. So they're, you know, they're all dogs, but they, but they have different attributes, even though they're the same species. So lately then, I've heard this phrase um, from a few people, and maybe you can help unpack it. Uh, it's that these variants make it a whole new pandemic. Um, <laughs> how does that happen? But, I mean, sort of, but not really. Um, what happens is, is that viruses are going to evolve. You know, we have influenza season every year, uh, uh, partly because um, that virus does what's called it, it drifts, it mutates. Uh, it, and, and indeed, sometimes it drifts enough that we come up with new, new names for, for flu virus strains. But what that does is, rather than people necessarily having to lose immunity over time, the virus changes enough that some people who were immune to last year's flu are no longer immune to this year's flu. So you see the same thing more or less happening now with coronaviruses, is that um, uh, around the world, what, what's going on is something called convergent evolution, which is viruses in, in, in different places in Brazil or in South Africa or in the United States or, or what have you that aren't descended from the same you know, ancestors are coming up with the same solution to problems. So, you know... Um, We've got economies locked down, but schools are open. Can the virus take advantage of that, uh, mutate in some way to um, uh, take advantage of the open schools and spreading kids? And that, that may be part of what happened with B117's emergence. But you see that same mutation, the mutation that made B117 uh, uh, spread in the UK last fall. You see that same mutation popping up in South Africa and Brazil in totally unrelated viruses. Uh, which tells you that, that that's basically the virus's way of solving a problem. You know, uh, maybe infections getting getting a little bit harder because uh, 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 you, you know you're you're starting to to exhaust hosts. Maybe the hosts that you've exhausted are mostly uh, older people, but younger people are a little harder to infect by by old variants. So maybe you mutate in a way that makes you better at infecting little kids, for example. And again, that may be the the B117 story with uh, P1 and B1351 that people probably, I, I don't, I, I know we're not supposed to because we stigmatize places. You, you know, we're not supposed to talk about place names with these variants, but I think otherwise it's an alphabet soup for people. So, you know, the Brazilian, I'm going to call it the Brazilian variant and the South African variant. What you see there is that that mutation, what's called N501Y, which is a mutation that that makes the virus more infectious and also more deadly, 
in combination with something called E484K, which I like to think of as the EEC mutation, which seems to um, confer a little bit less cross immunity if people have been infected before. E484K lets the virus sort of escape from that prior immune response. And we see that in diminished, um, both in reinfection risk seems to be uh, higher in Brazil. Uh, and we also see that in a little bit of diminished efficacy of some of the vaccines against E484K. Although the Pfizer vaccines, uh, sorry, not the Pfizer vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA vaccines, they seem to be every bit as good at, against these uh, escape mut mutants as the uh, as they were against the original variants. But with some of the other vaccines, the Novavax and Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, they still have some effect, but it's diminished against these variants. So, you know, you can say, oh, that's a whole new pandemic. Well, it's not, because we also have, I think I've said this on your program before, what creates a pandemic isn't the bug, it's the widespread susceptibility to infection. And unfortunately, as we move move through time and more and more people get immune experience with this virus by getting infected or ideally by getting vaccinated, that starts to deprive the epidemic of oxygen. And what's going to happen over time is it is going to subside. It is going to fade away. It is most likely going to turn into a seasonal disease that comes and goes, much like influenza does. Um, and, uh, you know, what it'll do over the long term is not clear, but but that's that, that's very different from a pandemic. What we see with a pandemic right now, you know, there's this sort of canard that, oh, it's just the flu. Well, you know, that's that's just you know obviously bullshit. We we don't build field hospitals during flu season. We don't have flu seasons that um, resurge in, in 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 March and April. You know, it's all absolute nonsense. But um, in as much as this is a this is a virulent little little bug that we're going to get more and more immune experience uh, against in the population, that is going to damp down the reproduction number. Little kids who are getting infected now, we worry that you know this may have some 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 as yet unforeseen health effects in those kids. But from an immune point of view, those kids are going to have early life immune experience against uh, SARS-CoV-2 that's going to protect them uh, as they get older. So that creates a very different dynamic, you know, uh, than the pandemic where, where everyone at all ages is susceptible at the outset. That sounds really good for, you know, three months or six months or, or however many months down the road. But in terms of of what we're seeing right now, um, I think the reason that we wanted to talk to someone who could speak to this is because I, I do think that there's this feeling and I've felt it myself that, you know, this is another wave of COVID. Um, you know, we know what to do. We know what lockdowns we should have and, you know, it will pass and et cetera, et cetera. But then, um, you know, you didn't hear the intro to this show, but, but I spoke about uh, the Vancouver Canucks who now have 14, 15 players uh, infected with this thing. Um, there are some reports that some of them are seriously ill and, you know, that doesn't sound to me like the past couple of waves. These are fit professional athletes and it's giving them trouble. Can you can you speak to what's going on in BC uh, with P1 and, and what the danger is? So so P1 is one of these uh, variants that both has the, the mutation that seems to make the disease more severe 
more transmissible. That's the N501Y. And it also, and this is a reason to be concerned in Canada, has this EEC mutation that allows it to escape uh, immunity from prior infection or from some vaccines. So the P1 variant is really concerning for all three of those reasons. Um, I, I would contest your assertion that we haven't seen this before. I'm not sure if you remember a Canadian Broadway star named Nick Cordero, who died in New York during the first pandemic wave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, young, healthy guy in the prime of life, and he was killed by this. I think what this is, is, is the, if you allow high attack rates, and the new variants make attack rates higher because the reproduction number is higher, um, independent of their increased virulence, which they also have, if you allow enough people to get infected, you're going to see uh, uncommon severe outcomes. It's just, hmm. you know, it's just math. Right. If you have a one in 10,000 risk of severe illness or death in a younger person and you allow, you know, 10,000 people to get infected, one of those people is going to die, right? Or, um, you know, the, the, the math's pretty unforgiving. So, so I, I don't actually think that this is um, that, that particularly surprising. I think, you know, the fact that they are younger folks and they are getting quite sick, um, the risk of that is clearly elevated with these new variants. We had a science brief that came out about two weeks ago that suggests somewhere around a 50% increase in risk of death, relative risk of death. Uh, so, you know, whatever your baseline risk of death is, you multiply that by 1.5. Same increase in risk in hospitalization and about a twofold increase in your ICU risk. Um, uh, and, that, and that doesn't change by age. So the absolute risks go down with age and go, you know, go up quite profoundly as people get older. But the relative risk isn't modified by age. So it's not something that suddenly kicks in when you're 60. This is all the way across the age spectrum. So no, I think, you know, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, you're seeing a degree of hubris where people have sort of ignored data that's been been out there from the get-go. I mean, from from China. We, we know that this kills young people too. And people have said, oh no, it's you know. It's just folks in long-term care. Now we vaccinated them, what have you. You know, this has clearly been something that if you if you let it take off, that's going to kill people who uh, uh, um, would not otherwise be dying anytime soon. And I think that's unfortunately what we're what we're seeing now. If we wanted to get a handle on the variants that are driving infections, I guess right now, let's say in BC and in Ontario and and in Alberta. How would we change the response that we've used for uh, the first couple of waves? What would we do differently that would perhaps do better against these kind of variants? That's such a wonderful question. Uh, I mean, I mean, the fact is that we saw an explosion of B one one seven about six weeks ago in Newfoundland, but they've had zero or one cases most days over the last two weeks. So these are eminently controllable, doing the same stuff that we've should have been doing for older variants. The trick in a place like Ontario or British Columbia is you actually need to freaking do it. Right. So if you say we're going to control this by reducing contact patterns between individuals, you actually have to do that. And there are levers that you can pull to change how people interact. 
in Ontario, we've sort of got this nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we're all locked down, but uh, going over to, you know, my relative's house for Easter uh, and going to the mall for my very essential, you know, mall shopping and, and, and what have you, you know, if you're actually going to do this stuff, do it. And, 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 and I don't actually tend to fault the population for this. It, it irritates me when I, I hear uh, uh, about some of the things that people are getting up to, because um, I know how, how badly this is, this is hitting the ICUs now. Um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the responsibility for the suboptimal state of affairs rests very much uh, with government that's uh, given people mixed messages that's clearly been quite ambivalent, that's given us messages like, oh, you know, we're not worried about not closing retail because we have ICU capacity. Well, what a messed up message that one is. Um, we, we've, we've got, um, uh, you know, public health officials who 15 months in still aren't acknowledging basic features of the epidemiology of this disease that are actually the features that allow us to control it and that have allowed, you know, Atlantic Canada and New Zealand and Laos and Rwanda and, uh, you know, Korea, you know, pick a, pick a country. There, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of countries that have controlled this. Australia has controlled it. You know, it's not about being an island. Laos and Rwanda are landlocked. It's not about having resources. Laos and Rwanda are poor. It's about actually using science to get the job done. And I mean, we still, to the best of my knowledge, we still in Ontario haven't ever had a clear articulation from our chief medical officer of health that the dominant mode of transmission of this disease is aerosol. And I think that's because that opens a whole can of worms in terms of, of costs and, uh, you know, the need to, to, to invest in better better. Uh, better uh, respirators for uh, for healthcare workers and for others, and for the need to you know reduce class sizes and the, the need to uh, you know work on ventilation in schools. All stuff stuff that costs money. But you know if you continue to um, sort of encourage hygiene theater, you know you continue to say, oh, we can prevent this with deep cleaning and hand hygiene and plexiglass. Well, you're not going to do it because that's not actually how this works at all. It troubles me so much that we wrote science briefs about this stuff. We, you know, uh, Staney Brown was talking about this in, 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 in press conferences weeks ago, that the, the finish line is in sight, but we have a minefield that we have to walk through before we get to the finish line. This was the minefield. And I mean, we're not just running through the minefield, we're freaking tap dancing in the minefield. And it's very, very distressing and frustrating to see. And, you know, one can do one's best to sort of raise awareness about this. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the government is calling the shots. And, and I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that our current government is particularly motivated to uh, use the tools in the toolbox that would really help us get this thing under control. It's very frustrating. Yes. And if those things... Um aren't going to be used properly, whether in Ontario or, or somewhere else, um, for whatever reason, leaving politics out of it. Um, I guess what a lot of people, I think, turn to is vaccinations. And I've heard a number of people say, you know, we can't just 
vaccinate our way out of this. But similar to the other question I asked you, if if we were going to alter our vaccination strategy um, to do what would best counter the variants and the disease we're seeing now, how would we change it? I don't think we would change it much. I think we, you know, I think what we need to do is just do the stuff that's already on the books as being recommended by the science table, right? So, so a big source of death coming into 2021 was long-term care facilities. It was very important for those facilities to be vaccinated, and they are. And you see that in the, there's been the sort of this marked reduction in in the daily daily death counts. Um, the epidemiology of COVID in Ontario is really interesting, though, uh, and this is it's a little bit nuanced. But we've been seeing this for a while. What we see is we, we've run we we ran the numbers recently because we wanted to get this right. So if we look at at at, um, at neighborhoods at forward sortation areas in Ontario, that's the first three uh, um, sort of alphanumeric characters of your your postal code. What we see is that 70% of all the cases in Ontario come from 20% of those FSAs. So that's that's very, very um, uh, uh, localized. And there's dramatic differences in risk. And if you look within those FSAs, what, what's characteristic about them? A lot of them, um, these FSAs are lower income. You have a lot of people of color. You have a lot of, um, of, of new Canadians. You have a lot of folks who are engaged in essential work. You have a lot of multi-generational households. And what we think has been happening is that we have amplification of COVID in workplaces. And then you have young, younger adults bringing that home. Uh, and, and that then has been hitting older relatives. And, and they've, they've been the ones winding up in, uh, in intensive care. The shift with the variants is that now it's the younger adults, too, winding up in intensive care. And I think Staney Brown articulated that in the recent press conference, that we, now we have multiple members of individual families. And I, I certainly saw that clinically uh, during the earlier wave, you know, the first wave of COVID, where, um, where you would have kind of husband-wife couples in the hospital but you know they were both people in their 70s or in their 80s what you're now seeing is sort of kind of multi uh, multiple family members at different ages hospitalized uh, simultaneously so you know th- this was on the books one of the science briefs from a number of weeks ago now suggested a hybrid strategy um, where we we um, vaccinate older people, but we really prioritize these hotspot uh, forward sortation areas, these hotspot uh, postal codes, um, and 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 lead with that. And that's not about you know. There's this really ugly language that's out there that I've come across where folks will say, "Oh, that's not fair. You're giving it to these neighborhoods." Where people aren't following the rules, and that's why they're getting getting COVID. I mean, that's absolute bullshit again. What you have is you have neighborhoods where people are disadvantaged and are um, engaged in essential work uh, and don't have the option of working remotely and don't have benefits, you know, don't have paid sick leave, which is why many of us have been calling for paid sick leave for so long. I was saying to somebody that, uh, that it's the difference between people who want to go to Ikea and people who don't have a choice. They have to go to work at Ikea. Absolutely. You know, if you, you're engaged in retail therapy, um, this is not you. Um, 
and so so you know that 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 would help us all because we all want to get back to normal as soon as possible and we will i mean you know what you see is israel for example is the most i think vaccinated country or one of the most vaccinated countries in the world at this point it took them about 4 months to reach this point with really high levels of vaccination um kind of good good electronic systems where they could track people down they had some difficulties because of, um, I think, some religious communities within the country are, are a little bit less receptive to vaccination, as is, is not un- uncommonly the case. But at this point, Israel has effectively returned to, to a degree of normalcy. I think they're still still actually keeping their schools closed for the moment, as kids aren't uh, uh, kids aren't being vaccinated anytime uh, real soon. But but you see that this kind of full court press with one of the mRNA vaccines, which are our most effective vaccines, you know, they got it done. It took them four months or so to, to, to actually really achieve these effects. And so in Canada, you know, we've got a bit more of a mixed bag in terms of vaccine efficacy and we're vaccinating slower. And so we'll get there, but we'll get there slower. This is my last question, and you you kind of alluded to it um, a minute ago. You know, I think everybody has had in in the back of their minds, like, the vaccines will come, and this will be hard, um, but it will end, and it's a matter of a few months. And, you know, I, I always have had an image in my head of it being May and, you know, going up to a cottage or whatever, and, and whatever that impression of normalcy is. So <laughs> I want to ask you, you know, when you picture, like, I can finally rest and, you know, I feel confident that the curve is coming down the way it did in Israel. Like, what are you picturing in your head and, and when are you picturing it? I think we're going to see very much a return to normal life. I think, you, you know, I think I think the culture around mask wearing has changed. So, you, you know, I think I, I just wonder, we've realized this year that flu season is optional, but I think we'll see very much a return to to, to, to normalcy as before, except, you know, we're going to have this respiratory virus that maybe causes a, a, a significantly worse than normal sort of flu season, but it's still that sort of uh, wintertime respiratory virus surge. I think this will remain a threat in shelters, in correctional facilities, in nursing homes, as many other infectious diseases do. What I don't hope that we see, although I think we might, is a huge investment in collecting virus species and doing all kinds of gain of function research on them where you genetically manipulate viruses to see if you can make a really dangerous pathogen more transmissible. I think there's been concern for a good 10, 15 years now that we could create a pandemic that way. And um, whatever the origins of this particular pandemic, I think that, uh, Hopefully, we've learned enough from this experience that we realize that nature can create pandemic pathogens without an assist from us, and we don't need to be giving a helping hand with that kind of research. I am going to close on uh, that hopefully optimistic scenario, (laughs) and let's not talk about the next pandemic just yet. Dr. Fisman, thank you so much for uh, explaining this to us, as you always do, and uh, I hope the third wave recedes, and the next time we talk to you, it's about something fun like mosquitoes again. Inshallah. Thanks. Dr. David Fisman, epidemiologist at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health. 
That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. You can find us in any podcast player. I hope you do. I hope you rate us. I hope you leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.